everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode number 71. My name is Charles Lowell. I'm a developer here at the Frontside. With me also is Joe LaSala. Hello. Hey, Joe. Another developer here at the Frontside. With us today is the publisher of the Recompiler Mag and longtime open source contributor, Audrey Eshright. Welcome, Audrey. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about open source and in particular, the labor that goes into open source and making that sustainable. But before we get into that, I wanted to first kind of talk about your background, both in terms of how you came to be publishing the magazine uh, and also your background in open source, how we're arriving at this subject today. So, I mean, the magazine in a lot of ways, I refer to it as a feminist hacker magazine. It pulls together a lot of different things that I've worked on over the years. So I'm going to jump all the way back to when I first encountered open source and then, you know, maybe that'll fit together. So when I was in high school, I first encountered the internet and the internet that was available to me at that time used things like Gopher. Gopher is a pre web protocol and it was free software. I didn't really understand that it was free software at that point, but I did understand that if I wanted to learn how to write code, and the computers I had access to were things like a bunch of really old PCs, like 286s and an old Macintosh. But then there were commercial compilers for writing code, and there were free compilers for writing code. So there was this thing called GCC, and I knew that it was on university computers, and if I got access to those, then I could write code. And then I got to college, and uh, right about when open source really started to take off as this concept of how free software comes into the business world. And so I've kind of had that as the background of becoming a programmer and getting involved in things. But after college, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to work with technology. So I took a break. And when I came back, I needed a way to get my skills up to date. So I started volunteering with this local group called Free Geek that recycles computers. And what they do is they take those computer parts and the ones that are usable, they build them into Linux boxes for people, like Linux desktop boxes. So this was kind of how I got back up and running was learning uh, how to work, you know, like how to volunteer in an organization that was very open source based, right? You know, like all of the tools that they use still are just completely open source. Was that for budgetary reasons or they didn't want to, the people to burden the kind of the recipients of these computers with, you know, any licensing fees or obligations to third parties? It's budgetary, but it's also ideological. The organization was started out of environmental interests. Uh, the original folks, um, they point to this computer monitor that they uh, dredged out of the Willamette River as like the reason that they do this, you know, that the way computer waste was being handled was so unfriendly that you might as well just dump it in the river. So they kind of started from there, but I think because those kinds of interests of creating something that was really accessible for people, really educational, you know, and accessible to lower income patrons has always been a really big part of it. I think that using Linux and using open source tools has been a big part of that. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, open source is so pervasive. A lot of people forget that in those days, you know, there was a lot of radical thinking uh, behind it, you know, of, of radical accessibility. Like it's your basic right to be able to access every layer of your stack it's a little bit unfortunate that, you know, you mentioned GCC that uh, like the GNU, um, the Free Software Foundation, isn't as much of a converse, part of the conversation uh, as they were back then. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that as more people come into it, you know, we've shifted through these different generations, basically, of open source contribution and how it's formulated. You know, and the fact that I even default to open source is really interesting because a lot of the values that I'm referencing are those free software values. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to the present. So part of how I built my skills was by starting an open source project called Caligator. It's a community calendaring platform that makes it very easy to import things from other sources uh, like Facebook. Facebook wasn't, it's interesting, it wasn't kind of our primary thing, but it's so big now. <laughs> and we've been doing this for 10 years. So a lot of things have changed around us. Wow. Yeah, we have a 10-year-old Rails app that is still up and running. It is now a Rails engine. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. Wait, it's, so is, there know, a, is this an application that you can run yourself? Or when you say it's an engine, it's just like, if I've got a Rails app, I can just drop it into any Rails app. Yeah, that was the direction we decided to go in a couple of years ago. Because my experience was that handing people a Rails app and saying, okay, so go fork it and then go install it and use it in your community. That's a pretty big technical burden, mm -hmm. you know, and at least as an engine, it makes it a little bit more flexible for people to really come in and make some of those changes without, you know, we can bootstrap it a little bit more for them. Yeah. It's always funny to me how some projects always run off the fork model. Like there's a lot of you know, HTML starters or like editor starters where the thing is you fork it. Uh, and I always, I always hate that, that model because mm. eventually you end up having to do this terrible dance with the upstream <laughs> in order to like jump around the changes that are coming through and, and stuff. And yeah. And that was definitely one of the problems that we would run into. We would make changes to functionality and to the, you know, the front end and the visual display of it. And it was really difficult for people to pick and choose the parts that were useful for them. Yeah. So, okay. So you've got a 10 year old Rails application slash engine. Now, are you actually running uh, an instance of this engine uh, yourself or just maintaining the open source? Uh, yeah, there's actually two of them um, that I'm involved with right now. One of them is at Caligator.org. It's a Portland tech events calendar. Mm -hmm. That was really our original site um, and the reason that we created this. Um, and the other one, uh, just as of a few months ago, is pdxactivist.org. And that uh, is a way to get a lot of activism and political organizing off of Facebook, basically. I mean, it, that's really our primary target. It's just giving people an alternative to using Facebook for all of their events. I see. So now, having maintained an open source project for 10 years, that's a really, really long time. Yeah. How big is the community now and how many different, you know, users have you seen uh, as you've developed this? Well, it's a little hard to tell. We um, deliberately don't do a lot of tracking, especially on the PDX Activist site. So I can tell you that there are a lot of events on both calendars. That for the tech events, there are probably five things that you can do any given day. Maybe ten, you know, during design week, they put all that on there too. Right. And that this has been very consistent over the, the history of the project. Right. I can also tell you that we've had dozens of contributors. Yeah, that's that's more what I meant uh, when I said users. Like, not necessarily the consumers of the calendar, but the consumers of the software that makes the calendar, you know? I, I mean, I guess I'm saying that I think that those users uh, creating events, they are part of, mm -hmm. part of that because they help curate content, you know, um, like with a wiki. Mm -hmm. Your user base isn't just the people who update MediaWiki. It's the people who really work on the content, too. Mm -hmm. I see. 
But yeah, our contributor pool, you know, we've had dozens of people. There's a contributor's file that I didn't pull up, but, you know, we could go look at it just to see. Um, we made a point of crediting everybody who contributed at a code sprint, you know, whether or not they checked in code. So we have really great documentation over the history of the project mm-hmm. about how the different ways that people have contributed and who they are. Yeah, I feel like that's that's something that uh, often goes missing in projects, especially open source projects that you find on GitHub, where you know there's so many people that are involved in creating you know software beyond just the what you see in the commit history, and it's kind of a poor showing uh, of what was all involved in in the whole creative act, right? Um, I mean, mm-hmm. sure, it's it's a it's an accurate reflection if it's a one person project who's hacking away on weekends, but you know, as your project scales, right? It's there's a lot of different stuff going on. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think the other part that's really interesting for me about this is that I can point to that big contributor pool, right? People who have come to sprints and they've worked on the project and they've, um, you know, they helped define the shape of the project. And then I can tell you that we had a three-person core team for a very long time, and then it was down to a two-person core team. And now I'm not really sure which one of us is in charge. (laughs) No, I mean, I know I I don't look at GitHub often enough and a couple of the other contributors do, hopefully. And, you know, and there isn't a lot of code change happening anymore. You know, we have a, I mean, we still have a wish list, but there's nothing so urgent that we stop all of our other work and go back to making this our primary effort. Mm -hmm. So of the people on the core team, how many of them are developers? All of us, all three of us were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and uh, we come into it with kind of different cross skills. You know, I've done a lot of uh, documentation and mentorship. Uh, well, as have the others, but I would say we have one person who's more design oriented and one person who is more ops oriented. So, yeah, we kind of um, built those different layers, too. Mm hmm. Now, of that group of the core contributors, outside that group of core contributors, you know, you said you you accumulate the list of all the people who've contributed. What's the breakdown in the roles that those those people are playing? You know, it's changed a lot over the course of the project. Um, early on, we had maybe half of the people were really doing development, and the other half were helping. Um, we we took kind of a, a very agile approach of like index cards and music user stories and. So we had maybe half of the people that would show up at any given time would just talk through the features and do research. You know, we were looking at a lot of integrations, so we needed to know what would be required to integrate it. We brainstormed a lot of things. We did uh, in-person code sprints every two weeks from the year that we started, late January to the end of July. Mm -hmm. So we had this just this whole set of in-person work that really shaped it. And that also allowed a lot of people who weren't necessarily contributing code to participate. I see. So people who had a a vested interest in, you know, a particular set of features could show up and, you know, voice that interest uh, and Mm -hmm. and be heard as opposed to having to just be limited to, you know, the people who were writing the the actual code. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we would ask people to spec it out, you know, to sit down with somebody and figure out how the feature could work and whether it fit with everything else we were doing. And I mean, like do that research and uh, investigation. I mean, over the years, we've kind of had this this come and go in waves, right? Mm-hmm. You know, every so often we need to go up a Rails version or uh, make 
certain kinds of major updates. So we get people together for that. Um, we've had some uh, different pools of co-school students that have come in and really been interested in working on this to get a little bit more development experience, get some experience working with other people, uh, have open source on their resume to show off. You know, I've mm-hmm. been uh, very enthusiastic about giving people that uh, resume credit, right? Mm-hmm. That if they need an open source commit so that they can say, hey, I know how to write code with other people, then our project uh, is very happy to help them with that. What is the conference that you run? So I am on the committee for Open Source Bridge. It's an annual um, conference for open source citizens, which is to say people who participate and benefit from open source. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty much the planet, right, at this point. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because um, at least I think it's just so interesting who does or doesn't identify themselves as part of that, right? You know, uh, anybody using a computer these days is in some way benefiting from open source and could potentially contribute to it and be part of that. But I mean, it's not just awareness. There are a lot of actual barriers to that, right? To everyone having a role in it. But the the conference, I co-founded it with Selena Deckelman, who's at Mozilla now. We've used it over time to ask a lot of questions about how across technologies, open source comes together to build things. Mm-hmm. You know, how projects work, what kinds of skills are involved, how we become better maintainers by being aware of our users, mm-hmm. by communicating better, by being good moderators of online, uh, you know, online message boards and mailing lists and things like that. And so we've had a, a chance to really just look at this broad swath of elements that come in. Yeah, I think that literally every bullet point that you mentioned I feel is, you know, something that we've come across and has been a challenge for us in, you know, our efforts to maintain our open source projects. And we don't even, you know, ours are mostly just libraries. There's very little by way of, you know, big, big frameworks or big, big applications. So, I mean, we've got it kind of easy, I would say, and we still struggle with those things, really kind of understanding our users, understanding how your open source project should be run and, you know, how it even fits into the the bigger ecosystem. Is there a guide out there somewhere for like how to, how to open source? You know, I don't know that I've seen a single guide, but there is really a lot of good writing and a lot of good conference talks on these topics. I think, you know, like you said, it's just this broad set of skills and we focus so much on teaching people how to code and maybe teaching people how to code together, right? To be good contributors together. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to maintain a project, you know, there's leadership involved, yeah. There's communication involved. <laughs> it seems to me that's the bulk of it, right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't know. Did you get training in that? I didn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just had to try things. Right. You know, and uh, I'm very lucky that I mostly made good guesses, but uh, there's some really bad ones too, you know, where later I looked back at it and realized we could have done better. So what are some of the mistakes that open source contributors uh, often make where they could save themselves a lot of trouble? I think a big one is um, thinking about it only in that technical framework. Even just by the tools that we use, we tend to force people into contributing solely through GitHub, right? Um, which means that you've got to understand some things about a bug tracker and how tickets go and, you know, the workflow around that. 
Yeah. I mean, I literally, I'm looking at a message in our Slack from yesterday where someone on our team uh, who doesn't interact with GitHub uh, said, literally, someone is going to have to show me how because GitHub is the most confusing thing I have ever logged into. I thought about that message today, too. And yeah, I guess I'm wondering, you know, how do you attract those sort of uh, more non-technical skill sets uh, to a project? It, you know, it takes a lot of direct mentoring and coaching. I mean, you already have some people that are identifying themselves to you if you're having that conversation. I think, you know, I've really benefited from looking at, well, who else is like them, right? Who else do they know that might want to get involved? Um, and starting conversations that way. You know, also, I mean, because the, the biggest projects that I've worked on are these calendars, it does give us some end users that maybe are interested in having more technical involvement, right? So if I can start looking at, well, who's doing a lot of cleanup on there? You know, who's paying a lot of attention to the content and the structure of the content? You know, I mean, s structuring information is also a technical skill, but people don't necessarily go from that to thinking, ah, I could write code or, ah, I could <laughs> submit a ticket and debug that thing and tell you what needs fixing now. But people can get there. We just have to be willing to talk to them about it and willing to look at it from their point of view. Um, I mean, one thing that I, uh, dig out of there is that if you're running, you know, you're running your open source project solely on GitHub, it's not going to be enough. You're going to be constrained in your growth just by, by the tool set and the kind of implicit exclusivity of that tool set. So what are some tools that you can bring in that are going to be more attractive? Well, I mean, I think mailing lists have turned out to be one of the most open-ended things that we've done. People who want to find out a little bit more. We'll sometimes post there, but also just having a good web page, a good, you know, info page of some sort, having your readme actually talk about some of the less technical aspects of it, right? Uh, even explaining what your project is for can be really good. <laughs> you know, we sort of make these assumptions like, oh, well, if they're going to go install it, then they know, but eh, maybe not. Right. You know, I, I mean, I think just looking at it as a broader set of communications. Right. What seems self-evident to you and maybe someone who shares a lot of context with you is a mystery to someone else. It never hurts to state the obvious. It seems to me you, you have to have, you know, be able to use tools that people are familiar with. But also, you know, part of the leadership is giving people things to do, giving them a way to think about your project or giving them a way mm -hmm. to act independently. Right. And so how do you think about the different roles in an open source project so that you can then, uh, you know, elucidate those roles so that someone coming who's going to look at your website or who's going to be reading your email list or is going to be, you know, participating in your community in some way, you know, and particularly, you know, not in a code contribution way. How do you think about the different roles of your open source project so that you can kind of hand that to them so that they can act independently. Like here's this thing that you could do. Here's this thing that you could do. Here's this thing that you could do. And what is kind of that core set of, of roles? Well, we could think about it in terms of the actions that we take, you know, to go back to kind of our um, lone weekend coder who puts something on GitHub, you're already writing the code, making design decisions about the shape of the code. You are writing about it in some way, even if all you do is update the readme to have two lines of something you're writing. Um, you're managing uh, any bug tickets that come in, right? 
any feature requests. So you're doing some project management, some kind of general analysis of that. And so they don't necessarily have to be different roles. You know, people implicitly take on the whole swap of them uh, when they start a project, but they can also be split out. You know, if you discover, uh, I, I hate to say like, oh, give away your least favorite thing, uh, <laughs> because people sometimes do that and they dump it out there and it never gets handled well because they don't really understand what they're looking for. But it's okay to say, I am really great at this one thing, and I really struggle with this other thing. So I bet there's somebody else who is just way better at organizing this documentation, and they can help me with that. If I could tell them, maybe, you know, what I'm aiming for, maybe they could help with that. So <laughs> you, you have to admit your weaknesses. Yeah. I think a lot of leadership is that kind of self-analysis, you know? Um, really seeing uh, where you are helping the most, where you're strongest, um, what things absolutely have to be done with you. And you, I don't know, I've learned you have to be really honest about that. Sometimes the thing you enjoy doing is not the thing that you have to do because nobody else can. <laughs> uh, often the hard things that are really not fun for me turn out to be the thing that nobody else can do. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I really, I just think that you have to spend some time thinking about that. And thinking about what you can teach people too. You already have the knowledge of your project and what you're trying to do. So a thing you can teach them is what your mission is, what your goals are. And maybe they can help you communicate that too. Yeah. Cause it seems to me if you actually can very clearly communicate your target, then people can begin to walk towards it independently. And, and that's almost more important than the actual taking the steps or the steps need to be taken, but that's something that, you know, if you can provide. Yeah. You, you need that kind of definition regardless um, in order to uh, make good decisions and have your work actually function, you know, and the less conscious we are about right, that, the more right. we tend to get a big pile of something and go, Oh, okay. Now, <laughs> now what, what do I do with that? Right. I think it also flushes out if you have a clear target and you have a clear mission, by externalizing it, it makes you reflect on it more and kind of hardens it, if that makes any sense. You have all these kind of ideas bouncing around in your own head about the things that you might want to do or might like to do. But once you actually try to express it to people and say, you know what, we're going to do this, then it has to, it takes on, you know, it takes on a reality mm -hmm. uh, of its own that's kind of subject to more scrutiny, but also, you know, yeah, subject to the constraints of the real world. And that's a good thing, right? It's going to, it means that, uh, you know, that whatever you're going to come up with is going to be more resilient. Yeah. And I think we can be kind of scared about putting that out there, you know? Uh, they won't see what you see. They, or they won't like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, they'll disagree with your goals there and go, Oh, well, you really should have been building, you know, an eggplant slicer and not a tomato slicer. And mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, I don't like tomatoes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but the, the more definition that we put out there and the clearer we are, the more that the people who mm -hmm. want to do what we do can find us. And that's why it's just, it's so important to do it. And you know, not to dodge those kinds of questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now I'm kind of wondering, so when is this conference uh, that you're running? Is this the first, the first one or is this uh, the second or third? Oh, like no, how we're long on year you guys nine. Can... You're on year nine. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, it's actually just in a few weeks. It's in June, the week of the 20th, I want to say. And uh, yeah, tickets are for sale. It's here in Portland. 
Um, we have a great volunteer program where you put in eight hours over the course of the entire week. You know, you can split it up mm-hmm. however you want. You get a free ticket. Nice. This is the problem with the uh, internet is I'm always finding out things that I wish I'd known 10 years ago. I wish I'd known about this uh, before I'd actually tried to do any open source. So this is the the open source bridge. And so what are kind of what's what's on the what's a sample of what you guys are going to be talking about? Well, the thing that we've added this year that's really exciting is an activism track. So we're having a lot more people talk about what they do with code, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in yeah. kind of this other way, right? More public facing way. Oh, so we have Nicole Sanchez from GitHub. She's going to talk about diversity and inclusion and some of the things that they do there. We also have Emily Gorchensky doing another keynote, and she talks a lot about data and ethics and has a lot of interesting things to say about how we collect and store and process information and the impacts of that. We have a couple of workshops that are really great, one on technical interviewing and the personal skills that you need. Mm-hmm. There's a session on keyboard hacking. <laughs> keyboard hacking? This is in the activism track? No, no. These are, these are across all the tracks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How many different tracks are there? There's five. There's five. Wow. Yeah. This is a big conference. Yeah. No, it, I mean, it is. It's just such a, a great community for me to be a part of. Like I said, the different kinds of projects that people come from and bring into it and the different skills, you know, we'll have people that are everywhere from kernel hackers to working in DevOps to people that kind of fit, I think, what we think of as our more typical like web developer or mobile developer you know, kind of skill set, um, people who run the, you know, run big projects, uh, folks from DreamWith often come and participate and they have a lot of really great things to share because they have such an inclusive focus on how they do their project. Where was that? DreamWith. It's a web journal spinoff. So it's a online community journaling website. Yeah. It's in Perl, which is huh. kind of cool. There aren't as many, uh, you know, outward facing things hiring Perl programmers these days, I think. Oh, so there, it's still, still a very active Perl project? Yeah. Wow. I did Perl a long, long time ago. I think it's really useful to remember that programming languages never actually die. There's always code. There's still plenty of COBOL positions out there. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, my uncle is a COBOL programmer. Yeah. I remember there was, it was only some statistic where, um, I can't remember, it was, uh, something like five years ago, Java eclipsed COBOL as the most, uh, <laughs> the most popular uh, programming language. So yeah, these cycles, the cycles are much larger than we tend to think, mm-hmm. you know, surfing on the beach as we do, um, not realizing that there's a whole ocean uh, generating those waves. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you're in a certain kind of technology startup land, there's always this push to go for the newest and the shiniest, you know, mm-hmm. the number of JavaScript frameworks that we've gone through in the last five years. <laughs> You know, and so you kind of lose sight of all of these things that have come before that are still in use. And this is what I really loved about doing DevOps is that all of those pieces are still in play and there's something to learn from that. They don't die. You don't get rid of them. <laughs> you just try to build on them and keep them working usefully. Right. Man, that is that is exciting. So you have a very, very huge cross-section yeah. uh, of the development community. Uh, it sounds like participating uh, in here, which is kind of a quality in of itself, right? Is there anything? So, I mean, that must give you a pretty unique perspective being with that level of like cross-discipline. Are there any insights that can only be gleaned by being able to perceive it from that high of a level? Well, a big one is that we all struggle with governance. Um, We don't really talk 
you know, outside of just a couple of forums for, you know, like events that focus on open source maintainers, we don't talk about the governance of projects, like who's in charge and how decisions are made. But it turns out that that has just an enormous impact on what a project can actually do and how it survives. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I might not have seen that as clearly without having people from so many different angles participating. So I'm just trying to think of, you know, keeping it in the area of web frameworks, because that's something that I'm familiar with. Like if we were to compare, say, the governance model, okay, so we can compare the governance model of, say, something like React, which is, you know, basically whatever Facebook wants versus something kind of in the middle like Angular, which is like kind of got a, an explicit governance model, but also is is heavily influenced uh, by Google versus something like, I don't know. Well, okay. Something like JavaScript itself, uh, mm -hmm. which has kind of an open democratic model, but it's heavily represented by, you know, major, major, major companies versus something like Rust, which is, I certainly get the feeling is, is, is a very explicit, very democratic model. All of those seem to have achieved like a lot of success. And those, those seem like very healthy projects. But, you know, on the one hand of the spectrum, like Rust, you have this super transparent, super democratic model. And then kind of on the React side, you've got this authoritarian model that's opaque. You know, how do you reconcile that those are both successful? I think a lot of what actually determines this stuff is who pays the developers. Mm -hmm. You know, in both of those cases, you're naming projects that present information and decision making differently. But there are corporations that pay those developers. And that's where the primary source of that code is. And mm -hmm. because of that, really, who pays the developers determines what gets made, you know, what code gets written. Right. So in a way, they're both doing some of the same things. They're just not giving you insight into that decision making in some cases. So the decision making apparatus is there. I guess the thing is, does transparency to the user base matter? Because, you know, I would say that the user base of a, of a thing like React dwarfs the actual corpus of decision makers. Yeah. And is it a problem or is it, I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be, you know, that that decision making process is opaque. Well, I might be opening uh, too much of a larger conversation by saying this, but if you're familiar with the idea of algorithm transparency, that, you know, decision-making is encoded into things like algorithms. And when we can't examine them, then we don't know how that decision was made. And so we don't know what biases are encoded into it. The same mm -hmm. thing happens with code in general. You know, you might say, okay, I like the outcome of this. This is working really great. But there are still biases and preferences that are encoded into that that you don't have insight into. And so mm -hmm. if they start to shift the project in a certain way that includes some users and excludes others, and even just on purely technical levels, you don't know why. You don't know how they got to that. You don't know if they're going to keep steering that direction. If you're one of those people that's starting to be excluded, you don't know what you can do about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen these kinds of governance discussions even happen within Ruby and Rails. Yeah, no, it does seem like these political questions come up constantly. I mean, I remember, you know, an example that leaps to mind was a project that I was involved with was the, the Jenkins project, um, which originally was Hudson, which was kind of came out of Sun Microsystems. And when Oracle bought Sun, they were basically trying to, I want to say, well, there's, there's, there's always three sides to every story, but from where I was sitting, they were essentially trying to subvert the project, you know, kind of to their own needs. And it ended up being there, there was a fork. 
uh, of the project. And luckily there was recourse there where it, because it was open source and it, because it was mostly maintained by the community and not by the company, they were able to fork it and, you know, they changed the name, they changed the logo. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of the end of the story. There was a question of which fork was, would survive, but, you know, that was resolved within probably six months. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, 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 you know, Jenkins lived and I think it's better off for it. But I guess maybe then a question that you can, one kind of stress test that you can put, like, is it okay to put weight on this technology is like, what would happen? Would my community and would I be represented? Would I be able to fork this mm-hmm. essentially? So, so maybe in the sense, in that sense, like React would pass that test in the sense that it would be reasonable uh, to fork it or something like that. I don't know. I'm just thinking of of ways to try and validate if something's safe to use. I think it's really interesting that you commented on the name change and the logo change because those kinds of trademarks are actually the um, most readily protected of all of the intellectual property in an open source project. So if things are going to go off and become a community project and it's you know being released under some kind of open source model, Often where the corporate control uh, stays is over th- those assets, the name, the logo, the graphics, uh, maybe even some of the look and feel. Right. And you have to ask if that code is still useful without that uh, infrastructure that they've provided. You know, if you take the whole code base and you walk off and you don't have the same developers and you don't have the same even hosting resources, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, is that code still useful to you? What if you lose the bug tracker? <laughs> right. Now, now you own it. Right. What's the cost now of maintaining it? Yeah. Uh, and are you going to get, uh, are you going to get a return on that investment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there have been some pretty big open source projects that have struggled with that, especially for user, you know, like end user facing software. Those don't turn out to be easy things for a community to pick up. Can you provide any examples? I'm thinking of some of the stuff that happened with like open office, LibreOffice. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Uh-huh. There's still kind of two different batches of people working on this. Um, and from what I understand, a whole lot of uh, intellectual property complications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny how sometimes, you know, it would be interesting to see a case study of all the major forks and kind of the outcomes of what there were. You know, some I can think of, there was a fork of Ruby Gems, for example, I think back in 2009, um, that you know, went off and was mainly kind of just a, I think that it was a way of kind of protest. Uh, and so I think some of those concerns were addressed in the main thing. So that, that fork ended up dying. Then you've got like the fork of IOJS, which was, you know, ended up there was a fork and then a, uh, a rejoining uh, with the node community. But I would say it was an effective tool. Uh, so there was a fork, but then a join. But it was a political fork. Not, a, I mean, it was a source code fork, but it was it was a political fork. Mm-hmm. And then you know you have like the Jenkins fork, where the fork basically swallowed its ancestor. And there's just all these fascinating outcomes. And then you've got this kind of LibreOffice open office, where it's really the 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 waters are very murky about what happened uh, with that fork. Mm-hmm. Well, and you hear people say like, if you don't like this decision, then just go fork the project, right? <laughs> yeah. Because that's easy. And if one of your major developers does it, then maybe, like you said, they have some leverage and they can make the changes they want to see happen by that thread of leading. But in general, that's a really hard thing to pull off. You know, you've got to be able to take your entire community with you (laughs) or at least enough of it to be functional. And I think people very rarely actually make that happen. 
Right. Yeah, I feel like that's a dishonest thing to say when people are like, if you want to go fork it, because really forking the code is the easy part. It's forking the community. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you do that, then you've got a lot of conflict. You know, you've got a lot of people's feelings uh, to address. Right. It's not a very simple thing to recover from. Yeah, some people do it. And and it's definitely, it's, uh, I'm curious as to what it, well, we have some uh, some good examples uh, of that happening, but uh, but it doesn't always pan out for the best. Mm-hmm. How can we make uh, open source, yeah, more accessible and supportive of contributors? And we mentioned a lot of that stuff in terms of how you can support people who are who are contributing, um, but there might be more to more to talk about that. Yeah, we haven't really talked about who gets to participate. You know, uh, we talked about what kinds of things you can do when you see that people are interested, but. We don't talk about how in order to be a weekend coder, you know, you've got to have those weekends free. Yeah. And certainly yeah. I don't right now. <laughs> yeah, you know? neither do I. You have to have access to a laptop if you want to go to code sprints or hack days. Uh, not everybody has that, even people who are programming or, you know, your own computer not owned by your employer. That could be really important. You have to have a knowledge of how open source works, you know, and I do see... uh Fairly often at conferences that focus on a lot of open source, there will be a how to become an open source contributor kind of talk. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of cultural knowledge is really important because otherwise you go into GitHub and you look at it and you say, what am I supposed to do here? You know, <laughs> what am I actually supposed to do with this? You know, it's just a wall of information. It, you know, there's nothing about the project on GitHub that creates those entry points for somebody who doesn't know how open source projects work. Yeah, and it's so hard to be able to perceive it from that person's perspective, especially if you're kind of frog boiled, so to speak, in the community. Of you know, you've been doing this for so long, you know, these things seem self evident that, you know, it takes a computer, it takes uh it takes the time, it takes knowing where to establish a toehold. These are all non problems for you. Mm-hmm. But they're insurmountable for someone else. And there's one other aspect of this that we haven't really talked about, which is the friendliness to the kinds of contributors that you have, the diversity of the project versus the homogeneity of the contributors, you know, whether or not you have a code of conduct and you know how to do something with it so that people feel uh, safe and welcome in your environment. There's a lot of people that stay away from open source projects because all they've ever seen is harassment and bad behavior. Yeah. I mean, you can have a counterexample. But if you don't have some kind of mechanism for showing that that won't happen in your project, then there are folks that are never going to submit a bug. They're never going to make a commit. Right. They're not going to put a thing on the wiki. Why would I voluntarily (laughs) subject myself to if the only thing on the other end of the phone is pain? Uh, There are plenty of people that have decided just to opt out because of that. Mm -hmm. So if open source projects want to see more contribution, you have to be really proactive in dealing with that. Yeah, I feel like there almost would be nice to have some sort of training. Um, just because I think like, you know, the first time that, you know, the first time you like, ha- like even if you have a code of conduct on your open source project, I think as you grow it from, you know, something that's maybe just one or two people to where there's a larger community, the first time you have like a bad actor, uh, who shows up and starts slinging turds, it's, kind of shocking and you don't it's like you take you're taken aback but just as the number of people grow in a community that is going to happen it's just un- an unfortunate fact of human nature and so not having to react to it but be prepared for it i think is something that's extraordinarily valuable and that's certainly 
you know, I don't know if there's a guide for that on GitHub or a guide for that on anywhere else, but I think it would be, you know, it, it's a, it's a very useful skill to have. It's just very funny that you say this because this is actually a training I do. Oh, really? <laughs> I promise uh, there was no payment under the table to to ask that question. Yeah, no, I do some consulting around this. Um, and I started a program with a local nonprofit called Safety First PDX. Um, and what we do is train user group leaders, conference organizers, open source project maintainers on exactly that, what to do with their code of conduct to enforce it and help people feel welcome in their community. And I work through really specific examples with people about how you respond, how you have those conversations, and what kinds of things you need to do to protect your contributors, your participants, and uh, be really firm about what isn't acceptable in your space. Yeah, yeah, no. Absolutely critical skill for any open source project, for any open source community, any really any, uh, any large accumulation of people. Mm-hmm. And GitHub's made it very easy to put a code of conduct on your project now. But without these kinds of resources, I think what happens is that people get that first incident and they panic because yeah. it's, it's scary to tell somebody that their behavior isn't okay. And, you know, to tell them that they might have to step away from the project or stop doing that or, you know, even leave indefinitely. Those are really hard things to get started doing. So. Yeah, I, I really enjoy doing the training and getting to walk through that with people. Are you going to be offering that training anytime soon? We just had one um, here in Portland uh, last week. And so we're kind of doing a quarterly thing, but I'm also really open to bringing it elsewhere. If people have, uh, you know, like a place to host it and some sponsorship that they can throw at that and people that want to take this. That would be awesome. Maybe we can uh, have you in Austin. I'd be into that. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Audrey, uh, for coming on the show. Thanks. It was really great to, to talk to you. It was great to talk uh, about kind of your history and open source and, and the things that you're doing in the community, especially the insights that you have around running sustainable open source projects. And also, thank you for uh, talking to us about Open Source Bridge, which is, uh, I understand, coming up right around the corner. If you want you can go to our podcast page and there will be a link to get $50 off if you enter in the discount code podcast. And uh, that's $50 off of your open source bridge ticket. So be sure to go check it out. That's it for today from the front side. If you're interested in hiring us, we do have availability starting in July. Uh, so reach out to us. All right, everybody. Take care. Take care.